If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com 1212. This is the World According to Zig podcast for June 22nd, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. That's where you can find all the previous episodes of the World According to Zig podcast. You can also find a link to my other podcast, which is the Individual One podcast, which focuses on issues directly related to the presidency of Donald J. Trump, a new episode of the Individual One podcast is also out today, so I urge you to check that out as well, although we may mention Trump slightly uh, in this particular episode of The World According to Zig for reasons that will become evident as we move along. I, I hope you had a, a really good start to your summer and a really good Father's Day. We did not do an episode last weekend because it was Father's Day, and I decided to, to take the, uh, the weekend off, although... Uh, <laughs> Not sure it was a great decision since there was a lot of uh, conflict and controversy in my family uh, Saturday, Sunday morning on Father's Day, but it was still a good Father's Day uh, in the end. My daughter Grace, seven year old Grace, who's been a, a guest on this program numerous times before, you remember her. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? She uh, gave me a Father's Day card that I will probably always cherish. And I, that clip that I just played there is probably, I don't know for sure, probably the origins of the card that she gave me. Uh, again, just in case you missed it. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? She wrote me a card, and she's become a Star Wars fanatic. If you've heard her interview for her seventh birthday a couple weeks ago on this podcast, you know this. And the the card was she had drawn uh, Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker engaged in a in a lightsaber fight, and then uh, with sp- spelling that was not nearly perfect, although about as good as Donald Trump's, she uh, she wrote, she wrote <laughs> that uh, dear Dad on the outside you are a Sith, which is a bad guy. And on the inside, you are like a Jedi, which is a good guy. Love, Grace. Now, like I said, I presume that the Trump good guy, bad guy thing has to be at least somewhat related to why she decided on her own to write this. I thought it was fascinating. I I think it's actually partially true. (laughs) 
<laughs> but for my daughter to think, you know what, on the outside, you're a bad guy. But on the inside, Dad, you're not too bad. You're more of a Jedi. I'll take that. If that if that's the way that she views me for the rest of her life, then uh, I'm probably ahead of the game. So, so that made my father's day uh, worth it. Now, while we didn't do a podcast on Father's Day, I was still working on the podcast that weekend. Because I had an opportunity to finally do an interview with an avid listener of this podcast. We have a very eclectic uh, audience for the World According to Sig podcast. We come from a lot of different walks of life. Not a huge audience, but a very interesting audience. And one of those who is an avid listener happens to be the play-by-play announcer for the Chicago Cubs. uh, A great guy by the name of Len Casper. Now, I had never met Len. Uh, I had... uh, become text buddies oh, i don't even know how long ago but we've exchanged a lot of texts together uh, we had uh, hoped to get together last fall if the cubs and the dodgers played in the playoffs but that didn't happen so we scheduled okay you know the cubs make one appearance at dodger stadium here in los angeles a year so let's schedule a get together and i can interview you for the podcast so we decided that last weekend when the cubs were in town to play the dodgers would be that time uh, len was incredibly gracious in, in setting the whole thing up the dodgers tried to screw it up <laughs> so it wasn't as con- as convenient as it might have been but i spent uh, most of the game and most of the pregame in the press box where len was getting ready to broadcast the cubs dodgers game on wgn for television and he gave me about a half hour for me to interview him. And uh, what you're about to hear is that interview. Now, for those of you who aren't sports fans or baseball fans, don't uh, fret because this interview has almost nothing to do with baseball. It has a little bit to do with baseball, but it mostly has to do with media issues and, and broader topics I think you'll find of interest. And then after the interview, I do want to talk about the 10th anniversary of Michael Jackson's passing, the latest on the Leaving Neverland movie. Uh, another allegation of sex abuse involving a prominent person here in Los Angeles. By the way, Donald Trump got an allegation of, of rape, I, I want to mention. O.J. Simpson is on Twitter now. Uh, and, and I also wrote a, a very provocative column about the Central Park Five, uh, which is also related to Donald Trump, which I want to get to before this hour is up. But right now, here is the interview that uh, I taped from Dodger Stadium during the pregame with the play-by-play announcer, television play-by-play announcer of the Chicago Cubs, Len Casper. From Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles, doing a very special edition of the World According to Zig podcast with a very special guest. He is Len Casper. He is the play-by-play announcer of the Chicago Cubs and an avid listener to the World According to Zig podcast. Len, it's been great to be uh, kind of getting to know you via text message over the last couple of years. Now finally meeting you at Dodger Stadium. Thanks so much for doing this. Uh, happy to do it, John. Welcome uh, to, to my world, so to speak. And uh, yeah, we have a, a mutual uh, friend slash acquaintance slash colleague, uh, Charlie Sykes. I actually worked with Charlie back at uh, WTMJ Radio when he was doing his show, let's see, 1994 to 2002 before I uh, started working in the big leagues uh, for good. So that's, I think, how I first heard you doing uh, some sort of podcast or something on the air was with, with Charlie, and uh, I was intrigued by uh, by your minds and how you think. <laughs> well, I appreciate that very much, and you invited me to, to come to here to Dodger Stadium where the Cubs are getting ready to play the Dodgers, and uh, you had a few moments for us to do an interview. So I wanted to ask you a, a bunch of questions, and apparently you're going to ask me 
me a couple of questions, so this should be fun. I guess the first question I want to ask you, Len, is as a kid growing up in Philadelphia area, I had a dream of one day being a baseball play-by-play announcer. Baseball was my life. This was the the era of uh, Mike Schmidt and Steve Carlton and Larry Boa, and the Phillies end up winning the World Series in 1980. And I, I never, I did pursue a dream as a TV sportscaster, but never as a baseball play-by-play guy. Uh, that was way above my my pay grade. I'm curious, as a guy who has lived the dream that I had, is it everything that you thought it might be? That's a that's a great question. So I grew up in mid Michigan, middle of nowhere, and uh, my guys were Ernie Harwell uh, and Paul Carey. Paul was uh, actually from mid Michigan, which is where I'm from, and Ernie uh, was from Atlanta, Georgia, and he had a Southern drawl. But I always, in my my mind's eye, I always thought he was from Michigan because he was one of our own. They were the voices of the Detroit Tigers. Uh, George Kell and Al Kaline, a couple of Hall of Fame players, were their TV voices. Uh, I remember getting cable in 1981, 1982, and watching Cubs games after uh, school on WGN, and then uh, the Braves on TBS. And lo and behold. Some almost 40 years later, uh, I'll be on WGN-TV tonight uh, calling a Cubs game. And to sit in a chair Jack Brickhouse and Harry Carey once sat in uh, is really overwhelming to think about. Uh, When people ask me if I have my dream job, my answer is it's well beyond my dreams. I just thought doing a big league game at some point would would really be amazing. And, yeah, I I feel like a 12-year-old kid every time I come to the ballpark. So it is way beyond what I thought it would be. Uh, It can be work at times, but it's fun work. And it's the kind of stuff I get to do when you and your buddies are having a drink at the bar talking about whatever sport. I get to do it for a living, and I really appreciate that. And to actually do games and to sit in the best seat in the house is uh, something I don't take for granted. Well, then you're not just a, a baseball play-by-play announcer. You're the play-by-play announcer for the Chicago Cubs, one of the marquee franchises in Major League Baseball. And one of the things that's always fascinated me about sports and being a fan of sports is what happens when a team like the Cubs, who had an identity for over 100 years of being the lovable losers, the 2016, the miracle finally happens, and they win it all, win the World Series, something no one alive had ever seen. I'm wondering, uh, is there a, a psychological drop-off after that? Is it not... Uh, is it a situation where the, what you're dreaming about, once you finally get it, is, it, is there maybe a double-edged sword to that? I, th- I think there is something to be said for that. I think Red Sox fans have gone through that. They've won now four since 2004. The Cubs, as you said, in, in 2016 uh, ended the, the World Series drought. Uh, I think diehard Cub fans will always be there, and I think you get bandwagon fans and you get fans who maybe were casual fans who were really into it uh, more than they ever would be. The other thing it does is it spoils them a little bit, and in some ways you forget all of the angst, all of the failure, all of the stuff that kind of led up to it. And now after you win one, you go, I want to win an- another one the following year. So it-, it creates a little more of an edge, I think, for a fan. Uh, if you talk to a New England Patriot football fan 20 years ago, they were probably not nearly as uh, tough on their team as they are now because it's you either win the Super Bowl or you stink. But, but the Cubs were in a, a unique situation. I mean, they were literally, that was their identity. The, the lovable losers, they never won a World Series. You don't, you don't think there's any downside to that being gone? Well, I think the downside is, it do, I think the losing and the, uh, the angst, and look, my dad grew up at, and still is a Lions fan, and the Lions haven't won a, an NFL title since the late 50s. Um, 
I think it does bring fans together, so to speak, and it becomes somewhat of a dysfunctional family. And when you win, it does change the dynamic of that. But I would, I would have a hard time ever saying that winning, winning it all or winning the World Series or the Super Bowl or the Stanley Cup like the Blues did would ever necessarily fundamentally change you as a fan. I just think it, uh, you lose your innocence a little bit. Maybe you grow up. You become an adult. You're not a kid anymore. Well, was 2016 everything it was cracked up to be? It was great. I mean, it was from day one. They were the best team in baseball. The, the, the thing about the regular season is they were, everyone thought they were the best team. But then when they got to the playoffs, in all three series, there were moments where it looked like it might not happen. Uh, they scored, I think, Four runs in the ninth in Game 4 in San Francisco. If they lose that game, they have to head home and face Johnny Cueto in Game 5. They got shut out in back-to-back games by the Dodgers in the NLCS. uh, And everything turned around in this very ballpark in Game 4. And then the World Series, we know what happened when they were down three games to one. And then the crazy Game 7. So I think the way it turned out, the fact that it almost didn't happen... Uh, Jason Kipnis, a kid from Chicago, almost hit a home run in the ninth inning, which just would have been almost too poetic to end the Cubs' run in Game 7. But the fact that it happened the way it did, he had the rain delay, he had the 10th inning when they won it, I, I think that would have been better than a 15 to nothing blowout because you got to make Cub fans sweat a little bit. So so there was no letdown. There was no, it wasn't anticlimactic. It really was everything the Cub fans had waited for for so long. I think it was. And, and you know, even though they won the pennant for the first time since 45. That's not what it was about. It was about winning the World Series and the, for the first time in basically everyone's lifetime. Uh, I don't believe if there are maybe a half a dozen people who are still alive who were born in 1908, right? That'd be 111 years old. There probably aren't anybody left. There's nobody left. So it. it I, I heard from a lot of Cub fans whose uh, you know, great-grandfathers had passed away or their uncle had passed away the year before and how devastating that was that they didn't see it. But they still feel like the spirit of those uh, uh, beloved ones are, are, are still around and we're able to see it. Um, there are a lot of people who didn't get a chance to see it. Uh, but I think Cubs baseball, like a lot of uh, teams you can think of, the Packers probably would be one of those teams, maybe the Yankees. It gets passed down from generation to generation. You almost don't have a choice but to root for them. I, I want to broaden the conversation a little bit to talk about the media and and a lot of people might not think that there's a connection between sports media or what you do in the sports media and for instance the news media but I think there is and so I want to get your take on on a on a thought that I have one of the elements of this is that um I am a huge critic of the sports media because I don't think that there is anything such thing as sports journalism anymore. And a large part of that is because it's kind of what we talked about at the beginning. Everyone in those jobs, it's been their dream job since they were a kid. Those jobs are incredibly tough to get. Therefore, no one wants to risk losing them. And then because you don't want to risk losing your job, you inherently become incredibly risk-adverse. And being risk-adverse is adverse to telling the truth, especially in an economy controversial situation. What do you make of that analysis on my part? I think it's 100% true, uh, for sure. Um, I often tell people, and 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 I walk a fine line because I I am employed by the Chicago Cubs. Um, My credibility doesn't matter to some people, but it matters to me a lot. And the way I kind of do my job, and we'll get to the bigger media question that you asked, is, you know, I'm not one who piles on the other team just because they play for the Cardinals or the White Sox or the Dodgers. Uh, I try to I try to do my job this way. Everyone's listening all the time, and would I say this about 
uh, a player on the Cubs that I wouldn't say about someone on the other team or vice versa. So that really keeps me honest in terms of doing the game and not being gratuitous against a, a team or uh, being too nice necessarily about, about the team I call for. Now, I'm a play-by-play guy, so I don't have to give a lot of opinions, so it's probably a bigger question for an ex-player or someone in an analyst position. I do have opinions. Uh, I will give them on occasion. I feel like my job is to kind of give people what the inside vibe is with a big league team on a daily basis because I have the access they don't have. Now, having said that, Uh, I think on the other side of it, the sports talk realm, which I know you have a little experience in, um, I've I've been on both sides, and there are a lot of things I hear on sports talk that is just not accurate in terms of what I know is going on, but I also think that you uh, you have to be detached from being on the inside in order to have opinions that will upset a lot of people. So it's this weird dichotomy or paradox in that Almost the less inside information you have makes you more willing and able to be provocative and to say things that aren't necessarily uh, accurate in the big picture but are compelling enough for an audience to listen. And as you know, as a sports talk show host, you can't have vanilla opinions. You have to have, in some cases, black or white. There's no gray. Uh, that's why I got out of sports talk, because I believe the world is, is, is filled with nuance. Uh, I think you believe that, too. But it's really hard in this day and age, when someone's listening for 15 minutes, to have a deep conversation about sports. All they want to know is, does this guy stink? Is this guy any good? And is this team going to ever win anything? Oh, I think sports talk radio kind of uh, paved the way for what political talk radio uh, is now. But let me, I want to expand on where I was going with the, the idea of, you, your job as a play-by-play announcer for the Cubs. You mentioned you're literally an employee of the Chicago Cubs. Yet, when you broadcast a game, it would be preposterous for you to say at the end of the night when the Cubs lose a game 8-2 to two, that they didn't really lose. And, and if you want to say they lost, it was all the umpires' fault and the Cubs played great and the other team deserved to lose. Yet, we have cable news networks that aren't technically working for a particular political party, although de facto they might be, for whom that's exactly how they would uh, analyze any particular situation, whether it's Republican or Democrat, if, you know, Fox News, that's the way they would analyze something involving Donald Trump. If he lost a game, they'd say, well, he didn't really lose. Don't believe the score. It's all fake news. Uh, the umpires were the ones that, uh, that caused this. Yet you, as an actual employee of the Chicago Cubs, would never think about doing that because you prize your credibility more than apparently they do. What do you make of that? Well, that's why I love being in sports, because I think we're in such a politically polarized time in the world that um, to have an opinion that goes against what you perceive your audience to believe uh, is is either death or it's it's like you said it's incredibly risky. Um, no, I would. I, I really fight the the umpire. You know, screwed up, and 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 that's the reason a team lost the game. I just kind of point out at that moment what happened, and then you move on. It's really hard for umpires to screw up now because of replay, uh, but. That's why sports and baseball in particular is, is kind of an oasis. Uh, and I, 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 as much as I like listening to uh, different opinions, I think our sport is really good at 
I want to learn something today that I don't know, or I want to be told something that I didn't believe or think and hear explain it why and then go, wow, I never thought of it that way. I like to think I'm like that, and I think a lot of people I'm around our sport are like that. And I wish in the political realm there would be more of that, and I think you try to get guests on uh, who can give a different uh, point of view. You don't agree with everybody you have on your, your podcast. I don't agree with everything you say, but the one thing I know is that you believe in your convictions, uh, and you ha- also don't just say stuff to say it, you, you will say, here's what, why I said what I said, here's what I mean, and I think we've lost a little bit of that outside of the sports world. So, let's talk a little bit about the game of baseball in very general terms, because I'm somebody who, as I've already mentioned, was a baseball fanatic as a kid. It was my life. I could literally listen and would listen on the radio to double headers, sometimes with barely taking a bathroom break, and that's not even an exaggeration. Today, other than maybe the World Series, I could not watch a couple of innings of baseball on television uh, unless you paid me. And, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. It's not just because I'm an old man now and, you, and I've lost the boyhood innocence. To me, the sport has changed so much. And the fundamental difference is when I was a kid, uh, whether it was real or not, I perceived that the, it, the game actually mattered to the players. And it mattered, one, because it was not just a business. It was a sport. And two, they didn't make nearly anywhere near the amount of money they do today. You know, Tom Hanks uh, famously said in, in uh, League of Their Own, uh, there's no crying in baseball. I've always disagreed with that because to me, uh, I, I, having lived through uh, three straight uh, Phillies losses and NLCSs, I know there was crying in baseball. I cried a lot when, those, when the Phillies lost. And by the way, some of the Phillies cried when that happened. There's no crying in baseball today when anyone loses even a seventh game of a World Series because they're all still multi-multi-millionaires. And so to me, it's lost... The who cares element. I mean, it's, and there's other problems with the, the the slow nature of the sport. But I'm. T- can you address someone like me who used to be a huge fan who now feels like, well, I don't understand what what the point of all this is. Well, I, I, I do. I do understand that. I think money in in pro sports in general, and certainly in our sport has to affect you in some way because at the end of the day when you're really really well paid you don't have to worry about a a job in the off season uh you know that is something to always fall back on and you want to take care of your family and all of that but joe madden has a uh kind of a theory on the five stages of being a major league player and i don't have all five specifically but essentially it's you know i want to get to the big leagues i want to stay in the big leagues you know i want to get paid and then the, the fifth stage is i want to win And so I think what you're getting at is you want to feel like you're rooting for a team or a player who all all that matters to them is winning. And the Cubs are in that mode right now. I think the Dodgers are certainly in that mode. Um, You know, the emotion that's shown in baseball these days is a lot more about when home runs are hit and guys get excited and then a pitcher gets upset and then they throw at each other and then all of a sudden the bench is clear and you used to think... Guys got used to get hit all the time, and the benches didn't clear. Uh, so that part of it I don't quite get. Um, but I, I do think there are times when maybe we should ask our, our, our players, our athletes, to be a little more open and out there in the public sphere and to show some of that emotion you said. But here's the other problem. Chris Bryant, during a, during a Cubs convention comedy show, said St. Louis is boring. And he was clearly kidding. And he got hammered in St. Louis. Yadier Molina's, you know, just took it very seriously and was was very upset about it. 
Well, Chris Bryant has a lot of personality, but that was one of those rare moments where he showed the, the kind of the fun side of himself. Well, Twitter blew up on him. And so what we do is we ask our athletes to do some of the things that you just said. Then they do it, and they're immediately crushed on Twitter. And I think that's a problem, and I wish we could get to the point where people didn't take it so seriously. And they let some of these guys uh, be a little more emotional publicly and maybe you know, uh, have that jocular humor a little bit and rip other teams and not have it be the end-all, be-all where you get not only booed but stuff thrown at you when you go to the ballpark. Another comparison I have with baseball and our political realm, and I'm curious if you're going to agree with this or not, is that uh, when, when I was younger... Uh, I felt like all sports, but baseball in particular, was you know was known as America's pastime. It was it was a game that was broadcast. The entire community, at least a huge portion of it, cared a lot about a particular team. Now, as the media changed and fragmented, I mean, I mean you're you're working tonight for WGN, uh, one of the first super networks, right? Part of why the money in baseball exploded is that there's this weird dichotomy where the pie shrunk, but the ability to milk that pie, to mix a med- metaphor, has actually gotten incredibly good by being able to micro-focus demographics. And essentially, much like the political realm, these cable news networks have very small audiences, but they're cult-like audiences. And so therefore, that's where the money is. Do you feel as if baseball and other sports, I think hockey has had the same thing happen, where you're overall impact on society has shrunk even though the passionate fan is is you know that smaller group which is cult-like is actually better for business do you see where i'm going yeah i i think that that is true to a degree the, the biggest point to be made about baseball in my opinion it's the most local of the sports and i think you see it in the ratings you know typically the world series ratings every year they say it's the lowest rating since you know whatever year uh, i think the fragmentation of our society and the way we uh, consume media. Every game of every sport uh, is on everywhere. Every golf tournament you want to watch, you can watch. Uh, every baseball game was not available to you and I when we were kids. Right? There's nothing special anymore. Correct. And so I do think that has hurt the sport. But I go back to this. I think fans generally, as my uh, partner Jim Deshaies says, they root for the uniform more than they do the player, and I think that's why Cub fans are so vociferous. Uh, that's why the Dodgers, you know, draw 47,000 every every night, although I know it's a different landscape out here in Southern California, but if you're a Dodger fan, you're probably going to only watch the Dodgers. You don't care about the Yankees or the Red Sox. You might not even care about Mike Trout, and that's the other problem with our sport is that Mike Trout is one of the maybe five best players in the history of the game. You never see him because the Angels haven't been very good. He plays on a West Coast team. He doesn't get a lot of ESPN and Fox love because of the team he plays for, and they don't rate. And it all comes back to ratings, and that's why the Cubs and the Yankees and the Red Sox generally are on the big game of the week. In case you're wondering where we are, John Ziegler and Len Gasper here. Game number two, a four-game set between the Dodgers and the Cubs coming up in just a little bit here at Chavez Ravine. These two teams, of course, could play again in the playoffs, October, November, December. I don't even know anymore. I don't know how many wild cards there are anymore. I don't I don't know. Uh, is it a five-game series? Is it a seven-game series? A wild card game? I, I don't know, but it's here tonight. Game number two of a four-game set. Sorry, I had to drop into the 1970s baseball play-by 
play-by-play announcer. As I'm looking into center field, Lennon, I'm remembering 1978 NLCS Gary Maddox from the Philadelphia Phillies dropping a easy fly ball. The uh, the, the uh, Dodgers winning the series in four games, and John Ziegler just uh, completely uh, develop, evaporating into tears. Uh, that was uh, quite a long time ago. Ten-year-old or eleven-year-old John Ziegler back when he really cared about baseball. The field still looks fantastic, although the game has changed uh, quite a bit. I, I uh, wanted to give you a, an opportunity to ask a couple of questions of me, uh, since you've been an avid listener to the podcast and we've gotten to know each other a little bit. Do you, do you have a, an inquiry for, for, for me? Sure. I would like to know how you choose your guests. I know timing has a lot to do with it because you have windows every week where you have to record uh, your interviews, but um, you know how, how vast would you like your, uh, your guest network to grow? And how willing are people to come on with you if they know they're going to be put in the hot seat? And I'm sure you've had a few instances where people have said, sure, I'll do it, and then maybe uh, looked up or watched one of your podcasts or interviews and thought, eh, maybe I don't want to be put in the hot seat. Well, Len, I drove an hour and 45 minutes here to, to Dodger Stadium to interview you before a Cubs game. So clearly I'm pretty desperate for guests. <laughs> I mean, I've wanted to interview you for a long time, and I thought this would be the right way to do it. I'm, you know, the guest thing is become uh, very difficult, and I think this kind of uh, dovetails with some of what we're talking about. With all the fragmentation in the media, nobody needs to do an interview of any kind anymore, really. Certainly not a podcast with a limited audience. So therefore, the person you're doing the interview with is you're almost always having in a situation where they're doing you a favor. Like right now, you're doing me a favor. You brought me into the to the uh, the press box here at Dodger Stadium. I, I'm going to make sure that I don't ask you any questions that might get you in trouble. So that that's just the nature of the way the world has changed. And I think that... It, it has been a detriment to the news media. We see it with politicians and public figures all the time where they can choose with whom they're going to do an interview. And and really, you know, essentially, interviewers have become toothless because they don't want to lose ac- access to a big-name guest or make it more difficult for them to get big-name guests in the future. I've been lucky in that I, I do have a lot of contacts with people who aren't huge names, but who are people like yourself who are very well known and have something interesting to say. And so that's really where I go to. I'm almost now to the point where it almost isn't worth it to do a gotcha go at them interview except in very rare circumstances and and i actually i miss that i love being able to go after somebody a hundred percent but it's almost impossible now to get people in a situation where a, a someone who is a newsmaker will put them in that circumstance because they don't have to and uh and so i i think we see a lot of times now where yeah, heck, even our, our our leaders of our country can go many months without facing any serious questioning, and I don't think that that's a, a positive thing. And you know, one of the things that makes my podcast very unique is that I don't do it uh, from a, a financial standpoint. I'm not doing this to try to make money out of this. I'm doing this. I mean, there's there's some funding behind it. But, um, you know, what I, I want is a, an avenue and a venue where someone can actually tell the truth about things no one else is allowed to talk about. Because the corporate media, and I think you would agree with this, it's not a censorship situation. It's not a conspiracy. It's everybody pursuing their own self-interest to keep their gig. 
and 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 that's not conducive to truth telling. Does does that make sense? Oh, it, t- it totally makes sense. And and the other thing I appreciate about you is if you have an interview with someone. And you get into a topic where you have an opinion and they have an opinion that might not jive with yours. If they make a, a cogent point, you will admit it and you will say, not that you were wrong or whatever, but you'll say, that's an interesting way to look at it. I had not considered it. And that's, that's what I seek now because I feel like there's not enough of that in just about every realm of life. Uh, I, I'm always trying to learn something new every day about anything I can, particularly the sport I cover uh, every day. So my whole thing is to talk to people who are really smart, a lot smarter than I am, and if I can pull one nugget out of that every day, I feel like I've kind of won. But see, the problem here, Len, is you are a incredibly minute minority of the audience. The pe- I'm serious. I, mean, well, I know that. There, I, there I are recommend. very few people who have that mindset. Most people seek out media now to validate what they already wanted to believe, especially in the political realm. They don't want to learn anything new. They don't want to be challenged. Being Learning new and being challenged is like going to school. Who wants to go to school when you can eat cotton candy all day? I mean, and the media used to be we could do school because there was only a few channels and we could still make money doing school. Now, at any given moment, people can go and get cotton candy. I mean, I, mean, I use the cotton candy analogy because I think it's a really good one. If my kid was able to get candy at any moment, how could I possibly ever get them to eat their vegetables? I mean, it's not possible, because no kid is going to seek out the vegetables. You're seeking out the vegetables, which makes you like 1% of the population. Well, here's the thing, though. With the fractured and fragmented environment of the media, I think podcasting and YouTubing and a lot of the things Jordan Peterson's been been doing, uh, Joe Rogan, obviously his podcast is very popular. I listen to your podcast, uh, The Bulwark. You know, you go down the list... I think there's a place for that. Will there ever be a huge audience for it? Maybe not. Probably not. But I do think that if you can even grab four, five, six percent of that audience, you you found your place. And if you can make those people religious about the way they listen, I'm an audio person. I like to run. I like to listen when I'm when I'm doing other things. Uh, so that's what I really like. I watch very little television. It's funny. I'm a TV broadcaster. Uh, there's like maybe one show a year that I'll watch on Netflix or HBO. The rest of the time I'm working or I'm out, uh, you know, running and, and listening to podcasts. So I think there is a segment of the population that wants it, but it's probably never going to be the vast majority. And again, kind of getting it back to baseball, I, I miss that about baseball. I miss, I mean, my gosh, you know, I remember bringing my transistor radio into school to, to listen to playoff baseball games in the afternoon, and everybody in school wanted to know what the heck was going on. I mean, because it was the Phillies, and they had rarely ever made the playoffs at that time. I don't think that exists. No, it doesn't exist, first of all, in the radio realm. It doesn't exist afternoon baseball, usually, during the playoffs. But more importantly, we've fragmented everything now to where... Everything is focused on, okay, this is big for baseball fans or this is big for Cubs fans instead of this is being big for the United States of America. And I, and I miss that, and I think, kind of ending this where we began it, I, I think that's a problem for baseball in the future, especially as this, kind of like with golf, as this generation starts to die off, what happens to baseball when that connection to their parents and their grandparents fades away? Do you have a thought on that? Well, I think baseball has a couple of decisions to make. I think technologically, uh, MLB Advanced Media uh, has just killed it. I mean, 
they're making a lot of money. Uh, I have the MLB uh, TV app. I can watch every game uh, on my iPhone. I can listen to every game on my iPhone. Uh, so with StatCast and a lot of the new analytics, uh, you see a lot more graphics uh, than you ever saw before. So there, the technological side of it does fit the sport. However, the paradox is baseball is about purity and about the past and about the fact that it was America's pastime. And so you have the balance of a sport that is not timed, uh, that occasionally can go four hours, can occasionally go 19 innings, and you have to try to please an audience that sometimes can't sit still for 35 seconds. So that's the big challenge over the next 10 years, is how to cater to a younger group of people who want to watch the game with their iPhone in their hand and kind of half pay attention uh, and keep them engaged to a level where we were when we were kids. I'm not sure they'll ever be engaged to that degree, so maybe they're going to try to please both sides of it. Um, I think the pace of game needs to improve a little bit, not to change the game fundamentally, but to get it back to where it was when we were younger. There's way too much downtime in a game, and I think for this generation, that could kill the sport in terms of it being one of the big, big sports. So there's a few little tweaks they have to do, but I, I, in my heart of hearts, I have to believe there are still uh, baseball fans like you and me who are 11 years old right now thinking it's the greatest thing in the world. And, and look, I mean, baseball is financially seems to be doing ridiculously well considering the, the problems that I see with it. Never, I would say financially, yeah. But, it's, but it's, its influence on society is not the largest it's ever been by far. I would agree with you on that. Um, and and, and I, what I fear about the future for baseball is you know, one of the th- ways that they've been able to maximize the finances is for, I don't know how many years, almost every major moment in baseball and the playoffs has occurred way past the bedtime of any kid on the East Coast, sometimes even on the West Coast, as what happened in the World Series here in Los Angeles last year. That's a problem when you don't grow up having those iconic memories of the biggest moments of a year. It doesn't have as big an imprint on your brain as you get older. Do you agree with that? I agree with you. And I would also say that even a big moment in the right time of the day still doesn't have the same impact. I interviewed Bob Costas earlier this year about the Ryan Sandberg game, which is one of the iconic moments in Cubs history. Uh, It was Cardinals-Cubs, June 23rd, 1984, Wrigley Field, game of the week on NBC. Willie McGee hit for the cycle. They named him the player of the game. Uh, Bob was reading the credits. And Ryan Sandberg hit a game-tying home run off Bruce Suter in the ninth inning. Game went into extra innings. Cardinals took the lead. Ryan Sandberg hit another game-tying home run off Bruce Suter as he, I think, was reading the credits again. They had to change the player of the game and give it to Rhino. And I, I, I asked Bob about that game. He said, I've called probably a half dozen games that were better than that game in the last five or six years. But none of it matters because of the media landscape and the fact that that was the only game people were watching and it stands out to this day. If you had that game played tonight at Dodger Stadium, nobody would remember because that's the world we live in. Less is more in a lot of ways, and now we have so much more that everything is less, uh, to, to put it. I mean, because almost nothing matters. I say this in politics now uh, all the time in the era in which we're living, but when it comes to sports, almost nothing matters. It needs to be of a gigantic 
you know, even Tiger Woods winning the Masters, I think, was kind of underrated considering the magnitude of that. We've already we we forgot about that in like two three days, and uh, and I don't think that that's healthy for the long term of any particular sport. Is there anything else you wanted to mention, ask, or, or talk about? I mean, I really appreciate you having me out to Dodger Stadium and to meet you finally and uh, to get you know, to know you a little bit. And I appreciate you listening to the podcast, and um, and I hope I hope you'll uh, continue to listen. I definitely will continue to listen. Uh, I don't have anything else for you, but I'm sure I will remember, and I'll send you a note in the next couple of days. Well, I'm sure I'll get a text from you. So this is uh, this has been John Ziegler and Len Casper at Dodger Stadium before Game 2 of the series between the Cubs and the Dodgers just before Father's Day. Thanks again uh, to Len for his time and his hospitality, and I look forward to taking him up on his offer to do this again at Wrigley Field in Chicago, one of the very few places within the sports world that I've always wanted to go uh, see but never have had the chance to do so. So hopefully that'll happen before the uh, World According to Sick podcast ends at whatever date that might be in the near or not so near uh, future. But thanks again uh, to Len. Now, I want to get to some other uh, news that uh, is of interest to me, and that's what we talk about on the World According to Zig podcast. Obviously, we've been doing an awful lot over the last couple of months on the aftermath of the HBO Leaving Neverland, so-called documentary, I believe a fictional film about Michael Jackson's alleged sexual abuse of James Safechuck and Wade Robson. Uh, This week is the 10th anniversary of Michael Jackson's passing. And because of Leaving Neverland, it's not going to be nearly as big a deal in the news media as it would have been otherwise. In fact, there have been articles, including in Variety, about all the projects that got canceled or scrubbed because of fear of the toxicity of leaving Neverland. Interestingly, Variety, who clearly has a a huge agenda here, then I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it might be at the corporate level. Variety also put out an article uh, this week, I think it was this week, uh, within the last week or so, where they listed the 15 best films of 2019 and somehow leaving Neverland made the list of the top 15 films. You cannot be serious! Now, if they had said fictional films, I might have said, okay, fine. But uh, this is absurd. It's particularly absurd when the decisions are being made by film critics about a movie about alleged sexual abuse where the critics clearly have no idea of the facts. And so we have this bizarre world where film critics... (laughs) who are very poorly equipped to be evaluating these kind of situations, somehow become experts and end up making incredibly important decisions about whether or not a story is viewed as credible or not. This reminds me a lot of the whole Penn State Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky situation. Because in that situation, almost all the decisions of credibility were being made by moronic sports writers, and let me tell you, I mean, you got a sense of that from my interview with Len. Having spent a lot of time with sports media people, they are about the dumbest people you could possibly find. Correct. I mean, they are, and they are clearly not qualified to be making decisions about whether or not old sexual abuse allegations are credible or not, especially when most of them are remarkably liberal and very politically correct. That's one of the things people don't understand about the sports media. The sports media might be more liberal and more politically correct than the news media. Part of it is because of something Len and I talked about. 
fear of losing your gig because nobody wants to lose a gig in the sports media because they're even tougher to come by good ones than in the news media and and let's face it people decide to become sports media people not because they're into reporting or the truth or whatever they want to go to games (laughs) they want to go to games for free and so these are not people that are well equipped to do this and it's the same situation with variety but back to michael jackson and the anniversary of his death coming up this week the 10th anniversary uh this is going to be a problem for the jackson estate because uh, it, it is going to further per- the perception that uh michael jackson is toxic now it, it was not decapitating leaving neverland but it absolutely harmed michael jackson the ability to do michael jackson related projects how much this is the case and how long that impact will be felt is still very much up in the air and there are two ways to correct this if you're a michael jackson fan one is you combat the film which as i know better than anybody is incredibly difficult to do because all the rules are on the other side all the rules were written by the pro sex abuse people, the people that believe that everybody's abuse claim is always real, no matter how ridiculous, no matter how absurd, no matter how contradicted by the facts. And so having fought these battles in the past, I now think that there's a better way for the Jackson estate to do this. And I want to be clear, I have not uh, posed this to anybody within the Jackson estate. I'm just spitballing. And, and you know, if they're Jackson fans who are listening to this to think this is a good idea, uh, maybe this can get some traction. But you, you want to salvage Michael Jackson's long-term persona and viability within the entertainment industry? Here's what I think you do. I think one of the ways you do this is you just completely ignore the film. And I think you got to spend a little bit of money in a strategic fashion in order to save money in the long run. You know, there are those who, who might have said, well, maybe the estate should have done something to celebrate the 10th anniversary of of his passing. First of all, you don't celebrate his passing, especially the way he died. It was a horrible way he died. Uh, and so I can totally understand why the estate wouldn't want to do that. And it's not the right time. And, you know, you, you can't create your own anti-documentary because it won't have any credibility and you won't be able to get as large an audience as you would. The media will ignore it. And so you're running uphill against the wind on ice Whenever you do that, I'm not saying you don't try, but that's not the way you do it. I got an idea that I think would actually work. Now, it would cost some money, but here's what I think the, the estate ought to do. Again, I have no idea how realistic this is, but if I was in charge of the estate, here's what I would do. I would secretly purchase a Super Bowl commercial celebrating Michael Jackson's halftime show at the Rose Bowl back in 1993. You ignore Leaving Neverland completely. And then all of a sudden, either just before or after next year's Super Bowl, up up pops a super well-produced retrospective on Michael Jackson doing the halftime show at the Super Bowl. You either congratulate whoever was doing the Super Bowl halftime show that year or you wish them luck. You don't do any publicity surrounding it. You knock people's socks off. It's going to cost a lot of money. Maybe if you're lucky, you even get a corporate partner to go in with you on it you pay the bill because no one's going to want to pay the money but you but in order to make it seem legit you 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 uh, partner up with some sort of corporation that uh, makes it appear as if the stench is off of michael jackson people 
get their socks knocked off. It blows up Twitter, and no one's going to do anything about it after it airs because then the focus is back on the game and the news media is focused on the coverage of the game. So if you did this right and it was well-produced and you kept it secret and all of a sudden in the Super Bowl, you got Michael Jackson right there, it's going to erase all the stench and go almost all of it, and going forward, he's no longer toxic. So that's what I would do. I would just, at this point, Ignore the movie. You're going to have to spend a few million dollars to get this done. But I think it's very doable, and that's what I would do if if my goal was to try to salvage Michael Jackson's image in popular culture going forward, something that I think we're going to see the damage having been done this week on the 10th anniversary of his passing. There are several other stories involving questionable claims of sexual abuse that I wanted to mention. And I look, I hate this subject. I want to make it very clear. I can't stand the fact that I am one of the very few people willing to go, hey, wait a minute, Uh, these stories don't make a lot of sense. But I feel now almost an obligation to do so because I know no one else will. And this didn't get a lot of publicity, but uh, I want to at least mention it. There's a Los Angeles area track coach by the name of Conrad Manwaring or Mainwaring, who's an, a former Olympian. He's not an American. He comes from, uh, I, I think, an African country. Uh, he is a black man. He's a former Olympian who has trained Olympian, uh, Olympic champions, and he's been a track coach independent for a very long time. Well, he he got charged with uh, at least a couple of counts of. Uh, child sexual molestation although the just to be clear the the youngest allegation here was of 14 years old the oldest was like i think 21 or 22 so these were older male track athletes who were uh 14 to 22 now right off the bat i'm going really seriously fort post pubescent track athletes 14 to 21 22 uh but it didn't happen. I guess it's theoretically possible. But here's the quote in the article that really started to give me the heebie-jeebies because this reminded me an awful lot of the Michael Jackson case and uh, a little bit of the Penn State situation as well. The LAPD was quoted as saying that uh, Manwaring got away with this for so long because, quote, his athletes were so driven to perfect their craft he was able to victimize them without them even realizing it. Okay. Come on. I'm sorry. As soon as you tell me someone eh, didn't even realize, they're post-pubescent boys. And a man, no evidence, by the way, that they're homosexual. A man allegedly sexually abuses you, your coach, and you don't even realize it because you're so enamored by your coach and you so want to be an Olympian that you don't even understand that this happened, which, of course, is the James Sapechuk and Wade Robson argument on Michael Jackson. They didn't even realize that they had been sexually abused until many years later. I'm starting to... I'm not ready to call bullshit, but I'm smelling bullshit. I'm smelling... There's a problem here. So I don't know. This guy could be totally guilty, but that quote really bothered me. Uh, and I'll tell you what else bothers me about this story. It didn't originate with an LAPD investigation, apparently. 
the LAPD investigated because ESPN was starting an investigation of this guy. That's problematic to me because when you have allegations like this, the perception of credibility is everything. And when a major quote-unquote news organization like ESPN outside the lines is essentially vouching for a victim, doesn't mean they're not telling the truth. I want to make that clear. But when they're vouching for a victim, and that's the first time that law enforcement has heard about them, that gives them instant credibility. And now everything that that person says is seen as far more credible than if it, they just came about them by happenstance and uh, you know the LAPD started their own investigation. And I clearly don't trust ESPN after what they did in the whole Penn State, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky situation. So I, I am far from willing to say this guy is innocent. He could be guilty as hell. But there's some red flags in that particular situation. There are also some red flags in the allegation against Donald Trump that he raped a, a magazine writer over 20 years ago in a department store dressing room. I get into this in some detail in the Individual One podcast, so I want to refer you to that. Make sure you check that out. And I don't know whether or not this person is telling the truth, but I do believe that the news media is handling this about as well as they could because there's some major problems in the big picture with the story it happened forever ago this person didn't say anything when he started running for president now he's running for re-election this is all part of a book it's a book that's about uh, how many men sexually abused this woman essentially Uh, there's no corroboration although there are two people who say that she told them at the time, but we don't know who these two people are. We don't know how much their accounts match her current account. Things change over time. Things change after Me Too. Uh, Trump, of course, is strongly denying this. He's denying in a way that's not credible because he said he never met this person in his life, and there's a photograph of the two of them together. That doesn't mean he raped her, but it just means Trump's a moron for for making that claim. So uh, check out the Individual One podcast if you're interested in more details on that. Somewhat related, although actually very related, since I happen to have met Donald Trump uh, backstage at the uh, the Today Show when Matt Lauer uh, had uh, interviewed me and Dottie Sandusky, the third interview that I had done, a major interview with Matt Lauer on the Today Show. Uh, Matt Lauer was in the news this week because he was completely erased and made into a non-person when the Today Show celebrated their 25th anniversary in their studio. They did a six-minute retrospective in which Matt Lauer was not seen nor heard of. He's been erased like it's 1984. And this Matt Lauer thing really bothers me. I got to know Matt pretty decently well. I mean, when you do three major interviews with somebody, uh, you know, they were high-profile, they were contentious, one of them was at uh, the Sandusky home where I got Matt Lauer to come. I mean, that was a miracle. <laughs> that was the most, maybe the most incredible thing I've ever done in my career that, that resulted in nothing good happening, really. Uh, but I got Matt Lauer to come to Dottie Sandusky's house and interview her and me for an hour. Uh, I spoke to him extensively before and after. I've been in foxholes with him. I don't like Matt Lauer. He's very good at what he does does or did he's a very good interview in fact i've told him he is the 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 most difficult person i've ever gone up against 
and uh, and and that's about as good a compliment as I can give an interview because I've been involved in a lot of high-profile situations. I've done hundreds of interviewers, interviews, both being interviewed and being the interviewer. And I got to say, uh, Matt Lauer was the most formidable foe I ever went up against. And in fact, it wasn't close. It wasn't close. He was that good. And so I know him. I, I don't particularly like him as a person. I think he was arrogant and uh, you know a bit liberal. And he never, did me no favors uh, in a lot of these situations. But I have seen him in circumstances where I do not believe him to be a bad person. I've talked in the past where at one point he even stood up for me when he did not need to stand up for me. He stood up for the truth. That doesn't mean he didn't ever sexually assault somebody, by the way. But I know the facts of these situations, and I think he got completely railroaded on a political basis because NBC needed a scalp after they had killed the Ronan Farrow investigation of Harvey Weinstein. And he was a big contract and an easy guy to get rid of because he's a white male who had slept around on his wife numerous times, and he ends up getting fired. This is what Matt Lauer got fired over, folks. This is a fact, okay? He got fired because he had an affair with a colleague at the Olympics without informing his employer. Now, he's Matt frickin' Lauer. You think he's going to say, um, I, I realize that our human resources handbook says that if I'm going to have an affair with this colleague that I need to inform you, he's not going to do that because obviously his wife might find out. I mean, more than one person knows in the media business, everybody's going to know and it might get reported. So why is he going to do that, especially when he's a superstar and he's been coddled his whole career? So I'm not defending it. I'm just telling you what he got fired for. Once that happens, the floodgates open and everyone's out to get Matt Lauer because he can't defend himself and he's been de- he's been castrated. So so everything after that is just bullshit. And there's not one on the record in name allegation from one woman claiming that he ever did something to that person that uh, was non consensual. There's not one allegation of that. Uh, and yet he's been completely destroyed, erased, probably no chance of a comeback, any realistic comeback. And uh, and in comparison to the way other people have been treated, I don't think it's fair. Somewhat related to that, O.J. Simpson is back on Twitter. Now, he hasn't really been embraced by the mainstream media yet. I, to my knowledge, Twitter hasn't even verified him yet. Although there's some uh, a good argument to be made, it's not technically O.J. Simpson's Twitter feed. It's clearly creating content that is real from O.J. Simpson, like O.J. Simpson videos. But it appears as if the account may actually belong to a lawyer of O.J. Simpson's. Regardless, effectively, it's O.J. Simpson's Twitter account. He's been uh, making all sorts of crazy videos, claiming he's back. Uh, he's going to get his revenge on his critics. Who the hell knows what that means? Although, stay away from the sharp objects, folks. And uh, and he's and he chose the 25th anniversary of uh, him, him slaughtering his ex-wife Nicole and her friend Ron Goldman. I mean, so right off the bat, this guy's got. I mean, obviously, he's got major problems when you slaughter two people. But it's been disturbing to see how many people who have been rejoicing over OJ's social media presence. He's got, I don't know how many followers now, but it was almost a million last time I checked. 
and this is a guy who really ought to just be ignored. I mean, I've retweeted it a couple times just to show that it's out there and to try to correct the record on some things. And so it is a tough call. What do you do in this kind of situation? But I have been saying for a long time, I'm amazed he's been able to stay this quiet. Because when you have that level of celebrity and you want attention that badly and you're that much of a narcissist and it's that easy in the social media age to get attention and he's obviously got nothing to lose now, it's been amazing to me he's been able to keep quiet for as long as he has. Obviously, that's over with. And I've seen a lot of people online, and I agree with this, predict that he's probably going to become a Donald Trump fan. Uh, would not surprise me at all if one time in the uh, 2020 campaign that uh, after O.J. Simpson endorses Donald Trump, that Donald Trump retweets the endorsement just to fuck with people. I, I could totally see that kind of a scenario happening. Correct. Yeah, I, I can see that occurring. Um, again, somewhat related to O.J., a situation where the media has largely blown it and we have uh, some people who were who should be in prison and aren't, in my view, and, and, and some people's world have actually been exonerated. Obviously, there's some major differences in the two cases. But I'm segueing to another case that involves Donald Trump, and that is the Central Park Five. I wrote a column, finally. I've been attacked on Twitter quite a bit for me raising questions about whether or not the Central Park Five really were exonerated. And I wrote a column for Mediate, which you can check out. It should be at freespeechbroadcasting.com, making the case that, you know what, it's possible the Central Park Five are innocent. It's possible Donald Trump was wrong to call for the death penalty in that case immediately when it happened back in 1989. He he bought a full-page ad in the New York Times making that case. That's all possible. But this idea that the media puts out there that that the Central Park Five were exonerated is not true. It is not based in fact. It's not based in logic. Everything that uh, that the other side points to that claims that the Central Park Five were exonerated can be easily explained, both from a, a political perspective as well as an evidentiary standpoint. And, you know, one of the things I did not mention in the column, which I urge you to check out, but it goes to the eye level of the evidence in this case, this might be, in some ways, the most compelling argument that the Central Park Five were not innocent. Here's all you need to know. Of the Central Park Five who were uh, you know, uh, uh, convicted and spent time in prison for this assault and the rape of a, a white female jogger in Central Park back in 1989, of those five, four confessed in detail. Now, there were problems with their confession. They were contradictory and inconsistent, but they clearly confessed on camera videos with their parents there in detail, all right? And they're teenagers. They're not infants. They're not, they're not eight years old. They're, they're teenage boys who have been around the block. They all can, four of the five confess, and this is where I'm going with what might be the most interesting piece of evidence that no one ever talks about. I didn't even mention in the column. So four of the five confess. The fifth also gets convicted and goes to prison for several years based upon the confections of the other four. Now think about this, folks. If they're really innocent, if they're really innocent, that fifth guy should be pissed the fuck off. He should hate the fuck out of the other four. He spent years in prison because those assholes confessed inaccurately implicating him in an assault for which he was convicted and sent to prison. 
Yet, oddly, I have found no evidence of him having any animosity towards those other four. And to this day, they all five of them get together constantly. They take pictures together. They're spending their $41 million together. They're all heroes together in the black community and in in liberal uh, academia and liberal media circles. Yet no animosity. I could be wrong. I looked for it, couldn't find it, asked for it about it on Twitter. No one said, hey, no, that's not true. Here's when this guy said this. He was pissed off. He's mad. He forgives him. No, none of that. Why? Explain that to me. Explain to me why the fifth guy isn't pissed at the four that confessed. And there's a perfectly good explanation for what ended up happening with the person who ended up confessing to the crime and being convicted, which then caused the, the five to have their convictions overturned because their DNA, this guy by the name of Reyes, his DNA was found on the victim. And this was, in the liberal mind, this was bum, 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 aha, all these guys were innocent, their DNA wasn't found, this guy's DNA was found, he confessed, he must be the only person guilty. Um, No, it is perfectly possible, underline possible, and logical then here's what happened. The five, maybe with some other guys that got away, beat the crap out of this poor woman in Central Park in 1989. They leave her for dead, just as they say in their confessions. Reyes then comes upon the body, and Reyes is the biggest scumbag on the planet. All right, when, when he confesses to this, he's already raped and murdered a pregnant woman. I mean, this guy is a sociopath. He's the worst human garbage you could possibly imagine. He comes upon the raped and beaten body and he rapes her, leaving his semen there. There's even evidence the body was moved so he could, guess, I I don't know, could have more privacy as he was raping her, the scumbag. One of the problems in this scenario is it's so horrific, it's so disgusting to think about, no one wants to, 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 to put the theory out there. But it explains everything. And it makes everybody's confession accurate and everybody guilty. And it certainly does not leave the Central Park Five exonerated, uh, which is what the media refers to them as, and I believe partially to try to embarrass Donald Trump, but he might not have been wrong about that. A couple other real quick stories. Jussie Smollett, remember that story? Well, a judge has said that a special prosecutor will be appointed to look into the decision not to charge him in the fake hate crime that he created, and which I got a lot of credit for having exposed, even though all it took was for me to have two eyes, two ears, and a mouth that was functioning, and a brain that was functioning, and maybe half a testicle. Uh, But hopefully we're going to find out the truth of that outrage. Um, one other thing before we, we, uh, end this episode, uh, the U S open golf tournament took place this past weekend. Gary Woodland was a deserving winner. I was disappointed with how easy Pebble beach played partially because the USGA has wussed out. And that is, I think the most important point, because it shows the way human beings react to criticism. When you get criticized publicly and you're vulnerable to that criticism, you're going to wimp out. And uh, the U.S. Open is no longer the toughest test in golf. They have wussed out because they're afraid of these spoiled brat players complaining about the conditions being too tough. Now, there are those who will say the weather didn't cooperate. That's true. 
The weather was very benign for all four days, and that's partially why the scores were so incredibly low at Pebble Beach, the lowest they've ever been at any U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. Even there, I find something interesting, though. <laughs> and granted, I'm not claiming you can determine anything based upon four or five days of weather. But isn't it interesting, folks? In this era where we're supposed to believe that the climate has changed completely, that global warming has changed everything, that that we're all going to die because of climate change. Folks, there's this thing in California called the June gloom, right? It's been around for decades. The June gloom. The June gloom is an atmospheric condition that's about as fragile as it gets. You get this gloom in the morning that, that no one can really predict. It can disappear in 10 minutes if the if the sun shines brightly enough and, and breaks through it. And yet, this June, up and down the coast of California, in the midst of horrendous, dramatic climate change that's going to cause the end of civilization, we have had the most consistent, pronounced June gloom of any year that I've lived in California, including today, uh, for the last, and I've lived here for 15 years. If, if there was really climate change, the June gloom would be the most fragile and easel, easily changed atmospheric condition you could possibly imagine. It would move to May, or it would go to July, or it would disappear completely. Instead, here we are, it's June, and there's never been a more pronounced June gloom, at least in the time period I've lived here. And by the way, it's been cold as crap, not a whole winter, the mist... When the hell is summer coming? Please get me some global warming. We just spent a week in Huntington Beach freezing our butts off at the pool because of the June gloom. So um, anyway, only only John Ziegler is going to make a connection to the, the low scoring at uh, Pebble Beach and the uh, what a bunch of bullshit uh, climate change global warming theory is. Uh, speaking of Pebble Beach and, and the U.S. Open, Tiger Woods. Uh, I know no one's going to say this. It's kind of like because Trump upset everybody in 2016. No one wants to say he can't win again in 2020 because he pulled off a miracle. Tiger Woods pulled off a miracle at the Masters, and we should all savor it. But based upon the PGA and the U.S. Open, where he looked incredibly mortal, it's looking very much to me like this year's Masters is effectively Jack Nicklaus's 1986 Masters. Jack Nicklaus never won another major, never won any tournament after 1986 in that incredibly dramatic moment that was up until this year's Masters, the greatest Masters ever. It's early. It's still early. Tiger's only 43. He probably will win another PGA Tour event, but it would not shock me at all based upon what we've seen in the last two majors if Tiger never wins another major. He probably will contend. Jack contended in majors after the 1986 Masters, but he never won again. And uh, Tiger's got some physical issues. Uh, I think we're going to look back on what happened to the Masters this year and go, holy shit, how the fuck did he ever do that? Because uh, he is is an old 43 years old, going up against guys who are studs. Uh, Brooks Koepka and and Gary Woodland are studs. And uh, the game has totally changed, not necessarily for the better, uh, but in a way that's going to make it very difficult for Tiger Woods to compete going forward. That'll do it for this edition of the World According to Zig podcast. Please make sure you share this via social media, Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, what have you. Make sure you do yourself uh, a favor. If you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. Until next time, my name's John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed.
ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.